0: in the end, a mistake, I fancy, it gets under your skin. Could be a really long night. Welcome to Nerdologians, where we repackage old content and shiny gift wrapping just in time for the holidays. Tonight, we will be discussing the BBC adaptation of Sir Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. We are your curators, Bryson
1: and Zachariah, the Hogfather.
0: Uh, this is way better than i thought it was gonna be <laughs> i'll start off with that i don't it seems
1: know like a lot of my recommendations start off with this was way better than i i enjoyed this way more it, than i thought it is
0: definitely a theme of the show this is true but at the same time uh this is our special christmas holiday episode so i hope everyone is having a wonderful holiday season and to you find time in your busy schedule to listen to our hour-long episode, yeah, two-hour-long we'll episode.
1: Actually, get a thematic episode done in time for it to be there on the holiday. Like we were trying to do Halloween, but they all kind of happened after Halloween. So,
0: you know, for a living yeah. during the holidays, I am a professional Santa Claus, and I can make this magic work. I sure. Anyways, uh, I'm actually a huge fan of Christmas movies. Uh, I'm always living in the past, so I don't know a lot of modern ones, but like 90s, maybe 80s, 70s, and then black, you know, old black and white movies love Christmas movies. And it's not really for like a super cheesy reason. I mean, I guess it kind of is, but, you know, like the Christmas movie, Christmas story always has to have like some sort of, you know, you know, I'm a Christian, so there's like give to the poor, you know this kind of thing. I had higher hopes than my <laughs> usual hopes for Zechariah's picks on this movie because I love Christmas movie. Uh, once I started watching it, I like couldn't believe I've never seen this before because it was freaking awesome. I guess this is a part of the Discworld universe. Yes. And at some point when we were discussing this, Zechariah told me this is a part of like the Discworld universe before I'd watched the movie because it's in the intro. But, and I was like, where have I heard that? Where have I heard that? And apparently this is huge, but the only where I had heard it from was that there was like an old PlayStation One game back in the day, Discworld, and it was like a point-and-click adventure. I played it a little bit, but this is like back in the day when you rented games from the store. So, you know, I played it for a while, liked it, and gave it back and just never got it again. But uh this is kind of nostalgic for me in a way, because the Like you can tell the art from the game mirrors what the the movie, the TV show is and yeah so like when i was watching it, i was like i i know i've had some sort of experience with this before but yeah some ancient game on the playstation one that's interesting
1: but yeah speaking of uh speaking of christmas movies i was actually so surprisingly brought back to the fact that this has like overlaps with the christmas movie we have actually previously watched out of season which is the green knight
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah it is a christmas movie yeah i had forgotten that up until i (laughs) brought it up earlier so
1: yeah i'll get to i'll get to that in a a bit but what uh give me some more of your overall thoughts on the movie itself
0: um what struck me at first was it was bbc and all bbc adaptations at least the ones i've ever watched are always really well done and so that was like my first "Eh, this is probably gonna be pretty good and then what really struck me was like the production values so like it has just as good maybe even better maybe not as expensive but just as good of production values as like a harry potter or something and that's kind of the vibe that i got from just the aesthetics of the movie maybe not like super harry potterish but like like a relatively modern fantasy that is not overly relying on special effects i know harry potter relies a lot on special effects but you know what i mean and yeah
1: it seems like a lot more practical
0: it's just super pretty to look at while you're watching it. like you're if if nothing else you're going to be very visually stimulated the whole time i'm trying to remember how this movie actually goes in the beginning because i watched the beginning then waited a few days and watched the other Okay, movie. so but, the uh, um they- to the world yeah, it is flat earth universe so <laughs> all the flat earthers out there you finally have an episode which maybe we should bring that up in this episode i don't know but um anyways
1: i don't know i figure we're gonna do we're gonna do enough disc world books over the course of this to, like
0: <laughs> yeah i'm kind of into it yeah. but basically right the movie starts basically what's going on is that hogfather is this Other Dimensions version of Santa Claus, and that they're getting ready to celebrate Hogwatch, which is their equivalent of Christmas. And you're obviously in some kind of fantasy world, but now you're gonna have to help me with the ordering of this. Is this, when does the, the thing happen where the, the main heroine of the story is like watching these kids? And they're complaining about there being monsters under their bed
1: yeah i don't remember i don't remember exactly where that happens i know pretty early on we get
0: how the scene is set up is they're like you have the kids and they're crying because there's monsters under the bed and they're like asking their aunt to come get the monsters out and instead of the governess the governess okay the governess and um it's set up to where She looks at the camera and she's like annoyed. Like they complain about this all the time. But then she actually goes and drags like a boogeyman or something. Or they puts it in the basement. She beats the shit out of her. I thought that was super clever. And so now you're you're you know you're aware that you're in this sort of like fairy, fairy universe or something. So you got that going on. I think another one of the main characters is death. And Uh, death is probably, there's probably the main heroine and then you've got death. Death is like surprisingly humane and he has sympathy for his human, I guess not victims, because it's like he really is sort of like the angel of death.
1: He doesn't technically kill anyone, he just shows up and it's like...
0: Right. It's kind of funny because, you know, you picture the angel of death like, oh, scary, super scary, and it's sort of like the old Christmas Carol version where death is actually a good guy only now he's more personified in this movie and he is like probably the most moral character in the entire show and he is like the bastion of all that's good
1: likes cats
0: yeah and then there is uh the main villain of the story Now you'll probably have to explain this how this works but there's like some kind of assassin's guild yeah
1: there, you can uh, go to the assassin's guild and pay them to and so, this is kind of...
0: I loved that word, inhum.
1: <laughs> yes. So, the real central city of, like, the Disco books is Ankh-Morpork. Uh, I, I feel the Hogfather's kind of playing off the Morpork.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, yeah.
1: But, uh, so, in the in Ankh-Morpork, crime has been, like, managed to kind of a bureaucratic level. So, you have the Thieves Guild and the Assassin's Guild. And like, you can get someone from the Thieves Guild robbing you and then they'll give you a receipt. (laughs) But yeah, so that's an official, uh, semi-official.
0: You're kind of introduced to them and then this character walks in and he's like, he's got one eye, both of his eyes are different colors. One's like white, one's black. And it's played by the guy. It's it's American Horror Story and he's like the young blonde kid. And if you've ever seen American Horror Story, you know he's like an awesome actor. And he's super good at playing creepy characters. Well, it's him playing this guy named like Mr. Teatame. But it's if I watched it with the subtitles on and it's it's spelled Mr. Tea Time. So every time someone encounters him, he's like, they're like, Mr. Tea Time. And he's like, it's (laughs) Hey, Atame. And he's just got this freaking vibe, and he is creepy for real. Do you know any of the backstory on him, where he actually comes from? Because I don't remember, but he just kind of mysteriously appears.
1: Part of the Assassin's Guild, and apparently uh, previously had some complaints due to like killing the dude's dog by nailing it to the ceiling.
0: Right. And then the guild yeah and then in the guild in like pure english fashion they're very against like messy murders which you know obviously you would be but and so there's some conflict happening between this leader of the thieves or the the assassins guild and tea time because they'll always be tea time to me and the guy is like disturbed by tea time so even the assassin's guild are like this guy's out there essentially they give him who brings it to him it's the like the auditor
1: one of the auditors the auditors ghostly apparition from outside the world who are like Mm -hmm. kind of very mechanistic thinking right so they're not big on this whole humans and their imagination and all that
0: right i think they say something like they're they're the logic of the universe or something like that and um they don't like santa claus basically they don't like the hog father and so they are hiring this guy to slay sam yeah in hume santa claus and this is like your story logic demiurge characters are trying to destroy santa claus and the magic of the holidays and part of this is that death has to dress up or he decides to dress up as santa claus which will probably be our first neurological topic. Essentially, there is a campaign to destroy the belief in the Hogfather for reasons that we'll get into later. The way that Tia time is going to do this, Tiatame, Tia Team, whatever, is he's, he's, he goes to the, the Tooth Fairy's mansion, or the Tooth Fairy's castle, and takes all these teeth that the Tooth Fairy has accumulated because if they have the teeth... They can um, they can influence the people, and so this will be our first topic. So
1: now I'm going to explain to the audience how to do magic, like (laughs) uh, the 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 uh, Zechariah's dirty guide to just how to do magic. Anybody can do this at home, do it yourself. How to curse enemies and uh, influence people.
0: Right here on Neurologians.
1: All right, so this is what's called sympathetic magic, which is the idea that uh, things that are similar to each other or linked to each other can affect each other. So say I could make a painting of someone, and the idea in sympathetic magic is that now there's a link conceptually between the person and the painting of the person. And so if I like, set the painting on fire and uh kick it over a cliff then maybe that person will have some bad luck or something Mm -hmm. right because i have destroyed a representation of them but if i have something of them like some spit some blood a tooth some hair uh then i could make this a bit more linked to them this is like the whole voodoo doll idea right Mm -hmm. uh you get like someone's name you get their hair make a little doll and then you like stab it with a pen or something and in ancient times there they would do things like write your enemy's name on the sole of your shoes so wherever you walked you'd always be stepping on your enemy or you'd write the name of the enemy city on a pot and just go bang right so yeah the idea here is the teeth are linked to the children and so if you influence the teeth you by that means influence the children right you can he who controls the teeth controls the the uh, universe. Yeah. The teeth must flow.
0: Yeah. The teeth must flow. And again, to like rant on the movie's production value, the uh, tooth fairy's mansion or the tooth fairy's tower or whatever looks awesome. I, mean, I remember reading, um, you know, Bible scholarship about you know the digging up graves in the Middle East and stuff, and they would just, they would have like they'd find like fingernails and and teeth and stuff like that and that was like you know their their form of you know trying to use i don't even know if it's the same thing really but but uh you know that just yeah, it's probably, it it's me probably within
1: that. the same uh, school school yeah magic. but yeah this is the this is basically the dirty and brutal type of magic that everyone does in some sort of culture in some way or another yeah and it's just different variations on the same thing so, which is pretty interesting you Now you know that. that is how you that is how you do magic the cheap and easy way uh yeah it's your enemy's hair or teeth or, or saliva or blood uh make a representation of them uh yeah. and then whack it with a hammer oh magical
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: christmas okay. is a time for magic
0: it is I think that's what I loved the most about it is that it was just like so magical and you know that's what you're supposed to be doing during Christmas is uh, you it's taking know.
1: over the world using tea yes.
0: exactly there's always got to be an antagonist every Christmas <laughs> um, I mean
1: yeah it is kind of the uh, X saves Christmas uh, movie like yeah. uh, the Grinch movie or uh, the uh, Nightmare Before Christmas or whatever but this mm-hmm. is Death Saves Christmas
0: yeah Uh, what I kind of liked about the the concept of death saving Christmas is, I mean, it's, I don't even know how to really go about, if you look at the seasonal, the the symbolic meaning of the seasonal pattern or whatever, right? Like fall, everything's sort of dying and uh, it's the end of the harvest. You you celebrate your harvest at Thanksgiving, that kind of thing. And then so like Christmas december 25th winter solstice around that time all that kind of thing like it really is so wrapped up in the concept of winter which is like death and um you know even death in the movie at some point talks about how which is jumping way too far but near the end he is explaining to someone (laughs) shit um that uh he's just explaining like the interrelation between how all these things are connected and how one flows into the other and i thought it was really cool that the author was you know aware of these symbolic things going on and then sort of you know had death saving christmas because it would it would differ you would screw up the flow of the universe about this no
1: i i, I know another reason why you might like this movie it's kind of a mystery movie right oh yeah it's, it it's interesting because they set up the crime and who's doing it but you don't know the why and how all the things connect yeah right and uh one of the, you kind of follow one of the protagonists as they're trying to unwrap it like mm-hmm. it sets up the antagonist okay they're gonna kill the hog father but why though and how yeah.
0: yeah well that was one of the parts that i thought was really cool is um when tia Time is talking to the assassin's guild guy and the assassin's guild guy is like what you've thought about killing i don't know if he says like fairies or a god or santa claus or hogfather in particular
1: it was it was uh he said i've considered A's like I've also considered how to kill the salt cake duck and to death
0: yeah yeah and uh, it was really it was a really good scene but um, anyways so the you know Terry Pratchett's I guess like symbolic knowledge to You know, wrap up death and winter and Christmas all into one ball. Like it's, it just totally fits and works like it's supposed to, and I love that it's
1: a Very nice package. Mm
0: -hmm. So then, since we keep referring to this person and never actually talking about her, uh the main, the basically, I don't know. There's two main characters: death, and then what's her name? Does anybody remember her name? susan, susan still hellet. <sighs> okay she susan the
1: granddaughter of death yeah
0: so somehow the granddaughter of death somehow there's been some sort of nephilim like interbreeding at some point but um the hero of the story which is common in ancient myth is uh she is half god half human and um she is sort of like the hercules or something of the movie right where Mm -hmm. you know death is sort of not he can't like interfere directly so he always always like interfering you know he's sort of just an observer but she has you know death's sort of personality or wits or smarts or something she's able to you know be the muscle behind everything and she's the one that will you know fulfills the quest and all that kind of thing.
1: Yep. Meanwhile we get some hilarious scenes with death uh cosplaying as uh Santa Claus basically.
0: Dude, I loved it the whole time. Yeah, Death is like giving out he's like you know Santa Claus at the mall or whatever. And the kids he are literally running.
1: takes over for the mall santa basically.
0: he takes over the mall santa and starts like he's got like this little guy with him and the guy is like kind of a scrooge but cool with it I guess i don't know but he's always like no this is how it is you can't like give people what they want uh world will go crazy if you give everybody what they want and then death is like i don't think that's what hog watch is really about or something like that and so he starts giving all these people what they want in order to counteract the plan of tia timey of Decreasing belief, so death's solution is that we'll all just start giving everybody what they want so they believe in Santa Claus. Hogfather. Yes.
1: Which involves him giving a small child a sword.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's right. hilarious. It is funny. Um, do you want to go into, like, hero myth stuff? Joseph Campbell-esque?
1: Okay, so... Uh, mentioning Joseph Campbell he's actually influenced by a guy called uh, James George Frazier, who wrote a very influential book called The Golden Bough and I believe I brought this up in our Green Knight's uh, review Uh, I talked about there the uh, idea of this battle between the uh, Summer King and the Winter King and how they like the Summer King has to die and the Winter King has to die uh, right, So mm-hmm. this whole death of kings uh, motif is one of the things that Fraser kind of explores. The idea that there are kind of these sacrificial figures that kind of die and rise. So he's the big guy be- behind the whole dying and rising uh, god uh, stuff. Which has really fallen out of favor in modern scholarship. Uh, that there is actually a uh, big category of dying and rising gods. or uh, there's like some kind of vegetation uh, spirit that dies and then rises again. Uh, so he like does like the corn spirit, the vegetation spirit, which of course we saw in Green Night, which is the dude's like basically a tree or a plant or something. And he gets his head cut off and then he gets back up. Uh, but here i think *Pratchett* follows the kind of death of the sun uh motif so i mean you can see the sun kind of symbolically dies because it kind of goes over the horizon and might as well be in the underworld if you have follow some kind of flatter yeah
0: the we should model. before we get into this we should go into like *Hogfather*. okay since we've went through all the characters yeah i mean you know this is what happens and <laughs> we don't have an outline but anyways I I love it. no it's good stuff but um it turns out right like the mystery of santa claus hogfather is that now i don't know if i wasn't paying attention but we got to clear this up first how did the what happened to the hogfather that turned him back into a pig
1: okay so boar Four,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <Remember laughs> um, when you know, death says that, <laughs> you
1: know, <laughs> uh, so I think it's just kind of part of the whole mythic uh whatever, right? Cycle. Yeah. Right. So the whole thing in Discworld is the gods or other things are kind of personifications of human uh, psyche, belief, etc. Uh, perhaps it's really big into this idea. That's kind of the theology of Discworld and so characters such as death are the personification of humans ideas about death and the Hogfather is apparently the personification of humans ideas about winter uh specifically the idea that kind of the sun dies and needs to kind of be reborn for summer to happen or spring to happen and so uh george fraser gets into the idea that like there's a sacrificial king that is sacrificed in winter uh he's kind of the scapegoat figure that gets chased and hunted down uh and if he escapes then he gets to like live another year or something
0: really it's that close cool
1: yeah yeah so all of that is kind of symbology from the and then you first you have like the human being hunted down and then it's kind of replaced with an animal right they're like okay we're gonna have a replacement for the actual king. We're gonna have a pretend king, which is just like a criminal. They're like, okay, well maybe we should do actual human sacrifice. Maybe we should uh, replace it with the representation like a uh, straw man or a animal that we can hunt, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so the hog there is kind of the animal that's being hunted. So the hog father is kind of the amalgamation of like this early sacrificial figure and the animal that replaces them. And then these kind of blend together into this kind of deific personification of the Hogfather. And so apparently once they realize that uh, technically the son's going to come back anyway, uh, he's kind of repurposed into kind of a new deity. So and there's there is some uh, question as if this kind of happened with Santa Claus, right? Some people suggest that like, he's like actually kind of this older god, uh, like Odin or something else, right? Uh, so you'll you'll see people musing on this in different places. But Terry Pratchett's answer for the Discworld series is that it's this dying and rising king figure, and I think we could actually get into some Santa Claus lore here.
0: Uh, okay, I don't feed me. That feed me because i don't know any okay. santa claus lore
1: <laughs> oh, saint nicholas of uh something or other
0: i mean i know the i mean i know the the knockout king
1: yes that is that is the I know that story. it is the the knockout king okay saint nicholas of myra was a bishop who was actually at the council of nicaea where they were uh debating the uh co-eternality of the sun and uh, the legend goes that he was so pissed off with uh arius denying the uh deity of christ that he uh just went out and punched him uh <laughs> and so this is this is extremely apocryphal but uh it is a very funny story and he goes on to uh do some various other shit like uh bringing uh dead pickled children to life and then like doing some gift giving which kind of uh sets some of this uh santa claus mythology into uh being there
0: and you know like you know someone getting up at the dinner table at christmas and knocking out someone else at the table over some petty shit. i mean it's just all there it's very very (laughs) holiday spirit yeah
1: uh, we're, we're just liturgically uh, reenacting Nicaea, but uh, so, but then there's wondering like, it did did is Saint Nicholas kind of like combined with another figure that's already there? Because there's questions with certain saints like, okay, how much of that saint is the actual story of their life, and how much is like it kind of com- recombining with myths that are already kind of in the lodges. oh yeah i
0: mean that's definitely there <laughs> it's pretty hard to deny with some of them um like
1: yeah like saint bridget that's like one of the the ones that's like okay what do we do with saint yeah. bridget because she just kind of overlaps with this goddess figure just way too well
0: yeah i don't know i mean it i feel like this is a topic i need to think about <laughs> for a while but um you know, it, it kind of makes some kind of weird sense in a way that, yeah, you know, that if you had some sort of quasi deity figure in a location or something, and then you have a saint that sort of gets tied to that area.
1: Okay, uh, we're, we're going completely off topic, which is great. So, how about we back up and discuss uh, saints? Okay. Because okay. why not? Uh, why not? Because we're discussing how. Uh, this kind of blend together. Uh, so the whole idea of saints and uh, New Testament stuff, this is kind of lost in a lot of modern audiences, is saint, the word saint is kind of means holy one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it is actually the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament of the Bible, uses this term to refer to the angelic beings, the holy ones. But the New Testament repurposes this term and applies it to these new Christian believers. It probably uh, probably intersects with places like Qumran, which was like this Jewish sect around Jesus's time, which believed that like the believers are like worshiping alongside the angels, and so they start sharing angelic identity and can be called uh, kedoshim or holy ones. The same word, but in Hebrew. And so when Paul starts calling believers the holy ones, what he's saying is you're kind of approaching this kind of angelic identity area, which angels angels are basically gods. They're basically deities, small yeah. g deities, right? Yeah. Uh, and as the church is moving into new places, you have the idea that these dead Christians are kind of ascending to this deific status they're entering into the community of angels right and they're kind of knocking these old deities who are trying to hold on to their territory out of their places and they're kind of taking on their divine uh portfolios i guess
0: and part to add to this part of the uh personality of these you know semi-deities deities is that uh, there's this idea of like cosmic geography where deities are um they have like territory and you'll even see this in like ghost lore and stuff like the haunted house the ghost it's always trapped in a house or something so like this is a pretty standard spiritual belief with like spirit entities and what is kind of interesting and something to think about you know like we're talking about these saints that sort of take on the attributes a little bit of the previous deity that mm. was ruling the area it does kind of appear in some ways that the like these saints are like the christianization of a deity that was there before mm. Mm. right so you know which i think is actually I, i'm a big fan of this concept because you know in the world today everyone's talking about their culture and shit But like if you can sort of christianize the quote-unquote deity slash culture slash whatever it just it just it just works
1: it just works it just works yeah it's uh it's the idea that the yeah you get what's called enculturation which is that the religion kind of takes on this new shape in the culture it is rather than kind of being this imperialistic thing coming in it's like okay this is our culture uh Dump your old stuff. Uh, you are now part of the West, now, uh, what have you, right? Yeah. So in, instead, it kind of adapts to the art, the liturgy, the uh, cultural practices, and kind of develops a new form, even if it's kind of in uh, gels with other forms across yeah. the world. I, see- and I do like that idea. Yeah.
0: Yeah. you can see a little bit of this in the. Uh... Orthodoxy where Orthodoxy has like Greek Orthodoxy. You have like Serbian Orthodoxy. You have all the Russian Orthodox. You have all these different Orthodoxies. And it's kind of cool because each of these different groups incorporate so much of their culture into that representation that they all have their own like spirit about them.
1: Just and, let's kind of not, and we don't even mention the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, which aren't technically part of the Orthodox Church. They're their own thing
0: everybody loves the word
1: orthodox yeah, yeah. but um the Ethiopians definitely took their own uh, cultural spin on it they've got their own their own books they've got like yeah this is probably semi-sacrilege but
0: uh our mutual friend Joe when he was in Eastern Orthodox he went to a Serbian Orthodox Church and this I don't need this is semi-sacrilege but uh what was really weird about it is i didn't see any serbian people in the serbian orthodox church and we had to do this ritual where we all took from the bread and the guy was like telling us about this terrible thing that happened in serbia (laughs) (laughs) you know that's the modern world for you but um but no it was it was seriously kind of cool even though i felt you know a little disconnected at that point but um i just thought that was really a healthy good thing that you know if you were an actual serbian person like all these rituals were like mixed in with the christian vision and it like takes on a new life to it which is which is cool yeah
1: i think i think it's a very healthy thing religiously speaking Mm -hmm. but yeah so back to uh back to the regularly scheduled show here yeah uh, <laughs> the uh the hog father so yeah myths and mythological figures kind of blend back and forth and get borrowed and uh in mythology all the time like one of the classic examples is uh the storm god figure uh so for example we're really gonna open it, this
0: can are you really gonna open this can of worms a little bit origins? okay for
1: example <laughs> when uh the romans encountered the egyptian religion they were like okay uh we're gonna like figure out which gods these are in our pantheon and so they like slapped uh jupiter or zeus's title on one of them but the funny thing is the uh the kind of storm god has been around for a while and kind of followed uh, the proto-indo-europeans. So you get uh, Zeus or Deus Potter or uh, Indra or what have you, or specifically Baal and Baal-Hadad and uh, stuff like that. But uh, so this Baal-like god had kind of already arrived in Egypt and he kind of slowly became the set figure, which is kind of now considered an evil god. But he, he was already there, and so you now you have two versions of the storm god right. occupying the same pantheon in different places. Yeah, just kind of hilarious.
0: <laughs> For but. sure. <laughs> but
1: that's so wh- that's how mythology works.
0: Okay, what do you what do you make of this then? What do you make of the like Yahweh as storm god thing? Yeah. To me, it makes perfect sense because they're like in the desert so i mean a storm god would be real great but um what do you make of that because i know that this is is this is like a point of controversy some people are really invested in the idea and some people like don't want to touch it for obvious reasons
1: okay well i feel that yahweh is what would be called a sumo deity which is kind of this what say
0: that one more time
1: sumo deity it's kind of a sum s -S s-u-m-m-o okay uh deity uh, not the uh, not the Japanese sport, but I swear, of, I
0: swear to God, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> and I was like, "Wow,
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> is this your own creation?"
1: Okay. Uh, so I think what's the what's the Hittite version of uh, the storm god called? Uh, because I know he's also a sumo deity, and it was like I can't remember, man. Not Bale. It's uh. gonna pause for a second (laughs) yeah look it up i'm interested i'm gonna actually find the quote here marduk marduk now let me find the quote okay Uh, yeah all right i'm ready so yeah you want to resume all right yeah we're good so uh long pause, long little break there and i found the book i found the quote because uh, we're just going all over the place here. Oh yeah, I like We didn't prepare it. any of this. We're just like, we're just <laughs> going. So Marduk is what's considered a sumo deity. And I'm reading here from Marcus Smith, uh, God in Translation, Deities in Cross-Cultural Discourse in the Biblical World. Uh, so what happens is Marduk kind of becomes this super god who kind of subsumes the identities of the lesser god into himself to some extent. So you have this whole, these lines, which is Urash is Marduk of the Planting, Lugalita is Marduk of the Abyss, Ninurta is Marduk of the Pickaxe, Nergal is Marduk of Battle, Zababa is Marduk of Warfare, Enlil is Marduk of Lordship and Consultation, it continues on for a while. Another one is Sin is your Divinity, Enu your Sovereignty, Dagon is your Lordship, Enlil your Kingship, Adad is your Might, Wise Ea your Perception and I'm, I'm definitely butchering all these names, but yeah, it's this <laughs> idea that Marduk kind of subsumes some of the identity of these other gods that are beneath him. Interesting. And it's the idea he's the sum of their deity in some sense. He's kind of above them and it connected to them in some deep way. Interesting. And I see Yahweh as very much like, I wouldn't say he's originally a storm god, but he kind of vacuums up storm god imagery as he goes and he vacuums up other imagery including including, like female imagery where it's like talking about the breasts of yahweh or something (laughs) yep and refers to like as a mother bird or something so he picks up this mother aspect uh Mm -hmm. yahweh uh you get other
0: well you get the uh, you definitely get the warrior god imagery and like the uh and the uh Conquest of Joshua and stuff, right? I mean, he, he literally shows up as a warrior.
1: But yeah, he definitely picks up like some of the aspects of the storm god. Like he writes, one of the big things he does is rides around on clouds in a lot of the Psalms, right? Or in uh, yeah. some of the prophecies, they just use the that storm god talking to talk about him and you even have jesus doing them he arrives in the clouds in judgment right you will mm-hmm. see you will see the son of man coming on the clouds yeah right that storm god imagery the dragon in revelation is part of like, that storm god versus uh dragon motif right but yeah. i i think the point is not to kind of conflate that yahweh is just another one of these storm gods he's kind of his own thing Even, I would say, even not speaking as a Christian here, just speaking as a very, trying to disconnect myself from this, that if I was to put this in a very non-religious way, it's kind of that this God is consuming the identities of uh, cultures he comes across and, like, they're, like, picking, like, okay, this is cool, we're we're slamming this in here now on top of it. So it's this whole layers of divine portfolios he's picking up along the way.
0: Yeah, and just to push back against someone that would think, well, isn't that just stealing other belief systems? It's really not. I mean, if you're thinking that theologically, if you have certain attributes set to a deity, but he's supposed to be the ultimate deity, if you encounter another culture and you have qualities of their deities that are You would you know that are good or align with what you kind of think your deity is supposed to have it would be normal to adapt things you like it's like
1: okay you know i never thought of it that way but you know the way we're thinking of our god he would definitely he would definitely uh have some of that
0: yeah i'm gonna butcher this for sure but uh, anselm of canterbury has this thing that it's like the god that's better Oh boy <laughs> i'm gonna admit you know what i'm talking about the uh it's like the ontological argument it's like if you can think of anything better than the god that you worship then the god takes on the attribute of the better thing mm-hmm. so like you know this isn't like copying as you would normally
1: think of copying yeah but i mean even then uh uh even stepping out of that they're not stealing from Western Semitic cultures. Uh, Israel is a Western Semitic culture. All of these are very much natural to their culture, and furthermore, this is how this is how religions operate. There is a lot of interchange of these ideas. There's a uh, interchanges of divine portfolios and even gods, like hopping hopping the fence, so to speak. Yep. So saying like, oh, Christianity is stealing. It it's just uh, disingenuous.
0: Yeah, it's just not I mean, it just doesn't work with how it's the, not the like it's, that work.
1: It's not the way religions work. Uh yeah. it, well, know, even, like religion is basically functioning like other religions of its uh area well, like you know, we've talked about
0: where, like the Enoch stuff and its a response to Babylon and all that kind yeah, of yeah Yeah. Like it's just you have two intellectual groups meeting each other that, you know, are the are the masters of their craft and when they engage with each other they are going to adapt to one another
1: yeah i believe uh, there's even been things on like the engagement of uh, christianity and judaism after the big split there's still engagement there's still things hopping back and forth over the fence i think the oh, sure. wrote a whole book called borderlines where his whole thing is they keep smuggling stuff across the, the really i'm
0: going have yeah. to check that out but, what yeah. is it called
1: uh borderlines by Daniel Boyarin. Where were we, though? Where were we?
0: (laughs) Somehow we got lost in the Hogfather.
1: It's very Christmas, very Christmas. Yes, uh, yes. uh, But yeah, so George Frasier. Okay, so George Frasier in The Golden Bell, he puts all this stuff together. He puts all this thing about this dying, rising stuff. And again, a lot of his work is very much outdated, but it was still like, in its time, it was the shit like all sorts of people like the William Butler Yeats, Lovecraft, for fictional people, T.S. Eliot, uh, and then like the psychoanalysts like uh, Freud and Jung are also like into him. Uh, You have uh, Joseph Campbell, of course, which we mentioned earlier, was real, Frasier was really influential on him. Uh, You have... Wittgenstein writing commentaries on go,
0: yeah, which is ahead. really weird to me because I, I want to read it because I mean Fittgenstein's a, a linguistic guy yeah. so you know I wonder where he's going with that but like uh, you're jogging my memory here because you know I'm all into like 60s weird religions and stuff and I'm pretty sure almost every like leading person in those cults or whatever they, they were obsessed with the golden bow
1: yeah, like uh, Fraser uh, in the White Goddess, which White Goddess is very influential. A lot of this uh, New Age uh, uh, pagan stuff. Mm-hmm. His, his White Goddess is very influential. He's very tied into the Golden Bow stuff, right? And so, again, a lot of this stuff might be considered more pseudo scholarship now, but at the time it was like, oh shit, yeah. But one of uh, his big things is he has this idea of kind of. He, I think Frazier sees that he's kind of trying to apply this kind of Darwinian approach to evolution and that to uh, religion. Interesting. To say, yeah. like, evolves from this primitive form and then automatically evolves to this next form and then so forth. So right. you get this smaller form, then you get this dying and rising king form, and then you get further form until you finally get enlightenment or whatever, which now uh, we know religion doesn't work that way uh
0: (laughs) yeah that was i mean that's a really huge thing i mean even ancient aliens uses this kind of stuff right it's like an over i mean it's really sort of like the modern world and doing the rome thing where we're going to take these concepts that we're familiar with and we're going to apply them to these myths of the past to make them like coherent in one giant narrative where you know nowadays the scholarship has shown that there isn't as many this isn't as cut and dry as things yeah. like the golden bow. Joseph campbell It would Joseph be, it would be very
1: nice if there was like some giant uh theory of religion that's like, okay, we can just slap this down. I know my science of religion, I can just like see how this religion works by looking at it. But yeah. people are way more complicated than that. Uh a lot of times when we see like similarities in religion, uh a lot of times when I've seen them you can just trace the, uh, actual history, uh, especially in, like, Western shit, and it's like, oh, no, that was just the proto-Indo-Europeans getting around.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because they dumped their mythology all over the place because they had a, some really compelling stories mm-hmm. and they just kept dumping them wherever they showed up. Yeah. To the point, like, again, we we have it in Re- the book of Revelation, right? Uh, Revelation 12. So, okay. in Revelation 12, you have the, uh, uh, dragon with uh, seven heads, I think. Uh, and that's literally comes from the Bale cycle, the uh, Litanu, the dragon with seven heads. Uh, Litanu is a cognate for Leviathan, who right. is in the Bible, and it says he's always going to slay him in the last days. Uh, that gets there because the Semitics were in, in, encountering uh various uh pro-Indo-European cultures like the Hittites. Greece is also inflicted uh affected by this uh right. Hittites had their uh their storm god versus dragon stuff. And so the the funny thing is you get Jesus versus the seven headed dragon or Michael versus the seven headed dragon and then way across the world in like Norway or something you have thor versus jormungandr and it's the same uh yeah. motif
0: yeah it's pretty crazy pretty crazy
1: or even all the way into uh japan you have suzano versus uh uh what's orochi the uh mini-headed dragon right
0: hell so, i don't know Yeah, <laughs> but that's, yeah that's yes, pretty fascinating it's all over the place um okay let's try to return back to the hogfather All right, so Um, yeah,
1: you got uh, George Frazier, so he's got all this Dying and Rising King stuff and so he thinks uh, this Dying and Rising King motif is one of the big things along this evolutionary path. And you see kind of Pratchett kind of get into a similar idea in the end where he's like, okay, things smaller myths like this Dying and Rising King or Santa Claus need to be believed first before you can believe in things like justice and Mm-hmm. Uh, beauty and truth, and all that, yeah, because Pratch is very much coming from kind of an atheistic uh mindset of this, which yeah. is pretty interesting. Seeing his theology, uh, given that,
0: yeah, really, I mean, it, I mean, I hate to bring it up, but it, it sounds like psych, like Lacan stuff, okay. where <laughs> it just does because, like, you know, like basically what death is, is explaining to her is that. You have to have people believe in things that aren't necessarily concrete or real in order to have them like make it real through their actions or whatever. And uh, I don't know. I think I think Terry Pratchett's Sir Terry Pratchett. His uh, I don't know. I think he has a pretty like ben- like benevolent view of myth. And all these things, even though he might not believe that they have some sort of concrete reality, but that we need to believe in them as a society or something in order to create, I guess, social order.
1: Almost Peter, uh, Petersonian in a way. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of the way he's like, uh, doesn't like come down hard on like whether there's some actual truth, but he's like, okay, I still, I still, uh, think the myths are kind of necessary for how we're thinking them
0: yeah and i mean that just goes back to like the power of myth because i mean i'm kind of a i don't know i'm kind of on the side of the fence that like myths are an expression of human beings and i don't i don't i don't like to take the view that oh they're not real you know because i mean i mean what does that even mean does they have no objective reality or something or Mm -hmm. you know blah 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 but
1: um yeah i think uh (laughs) i think Humans are fundamentally kind of narrative. Uh, And we we don't perceive reality. None of us do. Uh, We've got whole layers of protection against reality. And what we're seeing is like an approximation of reality coming through like multiple sets of filters, Mm. right? And what we get is kind of this bastardized version that we can survive looking at. Uh, yeah, just enough so that we can get our next meal right mm-hmm. uh, but I think I guess my view is that myth is kind of a deeper look into like the truth of things right and yeah. sure we've evolved to this point but that doesn't mean that uh, the fact that these ideas have evolved means they're not true any more than the fact we've uh, evolved to like huts certain kinds of prey or be able to run faster means that uh that's not useful right
0: yeah and it's like okay you have like subjective reality you have objective reality when you're creating myth and story you are sort of creating in some capacity almost a, a more true a more coherent version of those two realities because you know like when you tell a myth or you tell a story the human concept or the human subject is within that story in some capacity while describing objective events Mm -hmm. so it's really like you know myth is like a cultural truth or something you know in some way could be considered a more real version than either of the two you know because you are sort of you know creating a synthesis between the human experience and you know, because like, let's take the gods or whatever. You associate it with nature. Um, nature's always trying to kill you. Nature's always, you know, you, you have to bargain with it, really. And that experience of the subject interacting with the objective could only ever really come out as like poetry or narrative or story or anything like that. So,
1: Actually, I actually want to read his quote here. Uh all right, said Susan, I'm not stupid. You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill. No. Humans need fantasy to be human. To be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Fairies? Hogfathers? Little Yes. As practice. We have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones? Yes. Justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. Who thinks so? Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder, and sieve it through the finest sieve, and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that, or what's the point? My point exactly. Yeah, I, th- I actually think this is very cogent and something not a lot of especially from kind of the atheist cra- community I've interacted with, uh, this kind of uh, self-examination. I don't see a lot of it. Like, they seem to th- a lot of them seem to think that justice or mercy or goodness are kind of out there, but
0: right. they're just <laughs> yeah, well, that, <laughs> they're I mean-
1: very fuzzy about how they are. Uh,
0: i think is you're gonna have to read it again but what's the quote where he talks about the ape
1: where the falling uh angel meets the rising ape i actually really love that line
0: oh yeah i mean like it kind of goes back to what i was saying about like the the story and the narrative and the myth being some sort of convergence between like the The intellectual world, the mind, or whatever, and like objective events, and Mm -hmm. that produces the story, and that's what gives meaning and and all that, and that which is, you know, something of a higher order than either of the two.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a very, I think that line actually is influenced, kind of one way, kind of I view humanity, right? Yeah. Uh, Like, humanity is the kind of this, the myth of this primordial fallen figure kind of slamming into this evolving figure coming upwards, and those, the synthesis of those two is kind of human humanity.
0: Yeah, very Plato-esque, really. All right, how much more do you got?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know,
0: we went off the yeah. deep end there.
1: Yeah, we went all we went all over the place, but you yeah, should. so uh, he does seem to have this idea, of this kind of evolution of ideas going upwards right mm-hmm. so i feel like he's buying into a little bit of fraser stuff and fraser also mentions the sympathetic magic stuff so i think hogfather definitely draws a lot from the golden bell yeah but yeah i don't know if it's a good movie uh i feel it's a good adaptation now of-
0: now that I, now that we've gotten to the end i do want to like bring up one person all right um gosh what's his full name de chardon he's a jesuit he got he got in some trouble because his stuff was whacked out and it is kind of whacked out but he had this idea of in the newest sphere i don't think he coins the term but he he does something with it but anyways day whole thing is how and i think it kind of aligns with terry pratchett's idea in a way where um it's essentially this idea that okay you have like the evolution you have primordial soup um you have you know organisms they're starting to like combine together blah 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 but what Chardon is zooming in on is this idea of interiority and there's a lot in between this point and the next point i'm going to get to but Chardon thinks that the human beings and their ability to think and have like a internal world would eventually evolve into like a new he has like the biosphere and the next thing is like the newest sphere which is like the mind orbit and it kind of reminds me of death's talk to susan and how like almost a higher order of reality is created through our internal monologues are you know i think i think chardon that like the internet was going to give birth to some kind of hive mind or something but in some kind of way you can apply that you know uh progression to sort of i think terry pratchett's point with death that our symbolic or intellectual sphere is real and is needed but it's actually being created through our minds or whatever mm. and our beliefs and etc etc but yeah Okay. All right, well, Merry Christmas.
1: Happy Hogs Watch.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. These are your curators.
1: Signing off.